Well, what a wonderful time of worship we've had so far, praising the Lord for his goodness and his mercy. And now we uh, want to honor him by rallying around the truth and digging in deep. We're in the book of Galatians, and we have actually made it to chapter 3. <clears throat> We're looking at verses 10 to 14, so find your way there if you're not there yet. I want to say, um, just by way of review or recapping this, you all know Paul has been defending the gospel against error, right? The Judaizers' false gospel. And last week, we entered a large section of the text that will stretch uh, from chapter 3, verse 6, all the way to the middle of chapter 4, in which the Apostle Paul appeals to Scripture in making his arguments and rebuttals against the false teachers. Now, just prior to this section, you you may remember Paul appealed to the common denominators in the Christian's conversion experience, and we saw the benefits of that. We argued then that both experience and Scripture are important only when they go hand in hand. And we made the point um, pretty um, forcefully last week that Scripture always needs to determine the validity and the usefulness of our experiences for the Christian walk. Now, as to Paul's arguments from Scripture in our next section, they are airtight and practical and of great help to us in, in our Christian walk. And if not as a model for how to argue against error, certainly in this case against legalism, then also as important reminders of just how important it is that we know our doctrine. Now our examination of Paul's first argument in verses 6 to 9 was that one is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that was exemplified in Abraham, the father of our faith. So all who follow Abraham's lead and embrace God's gospel by faith are justified before God and are his true spiritual descendants. This argument of justification by faith alone is an argument that Paul makes in the positive. All right, last time, verses 6 to 9, Paul argues positively. Put your faith in you know, in Christ alone, and as you do, you follow Abraham's lead. This is in the positive. Now, as we turn to our next section, verses 10 to 14, we're going to see that Paul makes the same argument, but this time in the negative. No one is justified by keeping the law. That's the negative side of what he argued last last time. Now, before we examine it, let me digress here for just a moment and say that when we teach doctrine, whether it's in a, uh, a discipleship setting, one-on-one, or in Sunday school, maybe Bible study, whatever and wherever that is, there is wisdom in conveying the same truth in both the positive and the negative. You ought to think about this, especially those of you who are teachers, teaching children, teaching adults, whatever. It's very important. In other words, explain what you don't mean as well as what you do mean by a particular concept. And it'll help to clarify the meaning in the minds of your audience. Just uh, yesterday in our men's book study, uh, we came across the topic of the gospel just as an aside. We weren't talking about the gospel. And uh, we were talking about the view that many in American Christianity hold today, namely that repentance is not part of the gospel. 
and that to believe means merely to acknowledge the truths of the gospel, but without any volitional element that would drive one to believe, or the one who's believing, to hate and turn from his sin. Is such belief or faith even genuine? So if we were to teach that, it, it, that, it, that w- what it really means to believe, we might first explain what we don't mean by believe. We don't mean mere intellectual assent. Simply knowing the facts of the gospel saves no one. Even the demons believe, remember, and they are not saved at all. What we do mean by believe is to put your faith in the hands, I'm sorry, put your life in the hands of the Savior for safekeeping. To surrender your life to him by turning from your sin and work and your works-oriented lifestyle and refusing from that point on to trust in yourself. So we have a volitional part of belief, even an emotional part, a desire now to want to love and serve Christ. All of those things are very important. I might also add that most Bible commands that are stated positively also imply the negative, and vice versa. Maybe you didn't know that. The Ten Commandments are uh, stated negatively, right? You shall not. But they also imply the positive. You shall. Take the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's negative. No other gods. Worship no other god. Be careful to rid your heart of idols. Don't become enslaved to anything. All negative, you see. But it also implies the positive. We are to love the Lord our God with our whole being. He is to be our first love. He's to win out in all our choices. It's interesting that while the Ten Commandments are stated in the negative, Jesus actually sums them up in Matthew 22 in the positive. You shall love God and your neighbor. So most biblical commands may be stated either in the negative or in the positive, but know that they imply both, most. So why do the Bible writers state a command either positively or negatively, as the case may be? Well, it depends on really which suits the context better. If someone's going to engage in disobedience, we would do well to reference a command in the negative. Bill. Stop stealing. If, on the other hand, we want to encourage folks who don't currently have a problem with stealing to never steal, we would probably want to reference the same command in the positive. Hey, be a giver, for it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You see how that works. Having rehearsed that, let me say that Paul resorts to teaching the important doctrine of justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the negative, which is this. Anyone who looks to the law to be justified, either exclusively or as part of the gospel, is not justified at all and rather falls under its curse. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And I believe the reason Paul presents this truth, this truth in the negative through verses 10 to 14 is because he's countering the Judaizers' claims that have gotten back to him. There are three specific truths that Paul states here in the negative. 
and it leads to a, a positive conclusion. So together they make up the overall main idea that the law curses, condemns, and justifies no one. Only faith in Christ saves. That's the main idea. Let's consider the, uh, the three negative statements one at a time before we crescendo into the, to the positive conclusion that Paul has for us. First of all, the law curses anyone who fails to keep it. This is Paul's argument. The law curses anyone who fails to keep it. Those who want to rely on keeping the law for salvation, well, they need to keep all of it all the time. This is what he says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now the four at the beginning of this sentence indicates to us that Paul is indeed speaking in the negative about the same truth that he presented in the positive in the previous section, verses 6 to 9. There, Paul argued that we are justified by faith in Messiah, as Abraham was. But here he argues that we are not justified by keeping the law, which came after Abraham. Also, there Paul speaks for the reliance of faith, verse 9. So then, those who rely on faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Here, in verse 10, he speaks against the reliance on works. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So Paul gives in this new section the negative side of the positive truth that he made in the previous section. He said there that those who put their faith in Christ are saved and justified. He says here, those who put their faith in the law and obey it to be saved and justified only succeed in putting themselves under a curse. Now, what does it mean to be under the curse? To be under a curse. Well, we don't usually use the word curse today in everyday speech. I think it's probably because we associate it with the dark arts, right? Witches, warlocks, that kind of thing. But Paul uses the word curse here with no connection whatsoever to sorcery. It has nothing to do with that. Well, what does it mean? He uses it in this under formula, which occurs ten times in Galatians, to describe the situation of being under the authority or power of something. That's the under formula. Ten times in the book of Galatians, under the power of the law, under the power of the pedagogue, under the power of guardians and trustees, under the power of the basic principles of the world. So when Paul uses this formula in verse 10 with curse, under the power of the curse, he means that those who try and find their justification by adherence to the law will not only be disappointed, they'll actually place themselves under the power of a curse. And the curse, of course, is God's judicial judgment that leads to condemnation, pure and simple. It speaks to the consequences of a bad decision. Because the serpent deceived Eve, its offspring would crawl on the ground forever until the end of time. 
because Eve usurped the authority of her husband's wives, henceforth would struggle against the temptation to do the same. And because Adam willfully sinned, he sent the race into, into hard labor, where we have to work for our food by the sweat of our brow. These are curses. This is the power of the curse. We're under its authority, and we cannot escape. You get the idea. Well, here in this context, to seek to be justified by keeping the law, then, would result in being exposed as a lawbreaker and placed under the guilt of sin. That's what the law does. Now, the Judaizers no doubt told the Galatians a very different story, that they would be welcomed into God's family, they would be united with his chosen people through the keeping of God's precious law, his holy law. But in reality, they would only be putting themselves under its curse. As all good shepherds do then, Paul counsels his misguided Galatians with Scripture. He states the principle, and then he shows them where from the text he gets it. I love this. He says this, because it is written, everyone who does not, or everyone who does, who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, scripture obviously is meant by this phrase, it is written. That's always code for scripture in the Bible. It is written. The Old Testament is Paul's source, and in this specific, specific context, it's Deuteronomy 27.6, which says, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed, almost word for word. The idea is this. If you want to put yourself under the law, know this. You put yourself under all of it. And if you put yourself under all, all of it, then you obligate yourself to keep all of it, all the time. And if you break it at any point, you're guilty of breaking all of it and you come under its curse. That's really what Deuteronomy is saying. James would later make the same point in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. This is simple enough. The law is an entity. It's a whole. God gave it that way, and it must be kept that way. But it demands perfection on your part. According to Paul's quotation of Deuteronomy 27, 26, theoretically, theoretically, a person can justify himself if He keeps the whole law perfectly at all times, even on the level of the thought. And anyone who would be a fool, anyone would be a fool for trying to depend on the law as a means of salvation then would be to lean on oneself and his ability to achieve it. Now to get around being subject to the whole law, it seems as though the Judaizers, well, they thought that they could be selective with it and champion only those parts that suited their cause, insisting on circumcision, for example, and certain dietary practices that made communion with the Gentiles, well, bearable. But there's no getting around the fact that the law comes as a whole. And in addition to that, no such thing, there's no such thing as selective obedience. No, it's either all or nothing. And, of course, it will always be nothing. 
F.F. Bruce explains in his commentary at this point that Paul means to emphasize the, quote, unfulfillable character of the law. And because no one can fill the law perfectly, the law curses him, end quote. Richard Longnecker also makes the, a similar point in his commentary on Galatians that Paul would have been only too familiar with this truth in Deuteronomy 27. In fact, you may or may not be aware that Deuteronomy 27 and 28 were actually recited while a person received the dreaded 39 lashes at the hands of synagogue authorities for violating the Torah. Oh, yes. The Mishnah gives the details for synagogue lashings, which included a reader who was to read intermittently Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 59. That passage highlights all the curses from the Mosaic law for not keeping the words of this law. And they would be read aloud as a person was lashed. 39 times. Now Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.24 that he received the 39 lashes five times in his Christian life. And each time this passage would have been read to him, instilling the curse of the law with every stinging blow of the whip. Think of this. Paul himself still remains the greatest example of the failure of the law to save the most zealous of, his, of its adherents, adherers, right? And Paul would realize this on the Damascus Road. Now, by way of, a, of application, let me say that the selective obedience to God's word that the Jews practiced tried to skirt the curse, especially the Pharisees, which Jesus called hypocrites for doing, is still alive, I think, and well today in the church, selective obedience. For Christians, it's not an issue of salvation, and we're not likely to face off with Judaizers, but Christians are not beyond the legalism that they brought, that, that, that the Judaizers brought into the church, and more to the point, they apply the Bible often selectively. They don't seem to understand that God's word is a unified whole. No part, no one part of the Bible ever contradicts another part. That's why one precious component of hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. It's a whole. It's a unified whole. And Christians cannot pick and choose which biblical commands they'll keep. But they do this all the time. They practice selective obedience. They obey what's convenient and will keep them from hassle. And I see it all the time in the counseling room. People are willing to obey God's word except those parts that will likely make, well, their situation worse. And then they make excuses. And when that happens, God is not running their show. They are. And their own works and their own abilities is what they depend on. And it's only a matter of time before they make an absolute mess of things when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he meant all of them. Now, number two, the law not only curses, but it condemns. The law denies justification to everyone who tries to keep it, verse 11. Now, it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. 
the antithesis that Paul presents between law and, and faith is unmistakable here. For example, he shows and will continue to show from the Old Testament passages uh, in, in this, in, in this pa- uh, passage, verses 10 to 14, that the curse is associated with the law, but righteousness is associated with faith. And notice that he speaks of being justified. That's passive. That's passive, right? One doesn't justify oneself. One is declared to be justified. And he is justified by God. And God justifies the sinner, not by anything that the sinner does, like keeping the law, but through the sinner's faith in Christ. And to cap it all off, contrary to what the Judaizers think and teach, There's no teaching on justification by obedience to the law anywhere in the Old Testament. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. There is no teaching on justification by obedience to the law anywhere in the Old Testament. Out of 66 books, that concept is nowhere implied, much less taught. Now that's saying something. But it does teach justification by faith. And Paul quotes word for word from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 24. The just shall live by faith. It's all over the place. We saw it with Abraham. And now we see it here in the context of Habakkuk. The prophet, of course, here means that the just, that the just lives by faith in God's sure promise. In the context of the prophet, he's talking about the promise of God returning to deliver them from, from, uh, from trouble and trial and despair, from captivity and so on. But this phrase is me- by this phrase is meant two truths. It, it's kind of a, a two sides of the same coin. When he says that, the prophet says, that one will live by faith, he means, first of all, one will really truly live by faith. One will become alive by faith. Become alive in the truest sense of the term, by means of faith. That would be conversion. Possess eternal life. And the other truth is that one will continue to live out his converted life by means of faith as well. The prophet didn't distinguish between the two, but includes them in this rather pregnant phrase. We call that sanctification. Paul says that it's clear, which means that if you study the Old Testament in any unbiased way, letting the text speak for itself, it will become obvious that the law of Moses was never intended to save or justify anyone. It means strictly or is meant strictly as a means of sanctification for believing Jews under the Old Covenant. And let's understand, for believing Jews, the law would have been a delight. And the, the psalmists talk of God's laws being a delight. David, and so on. And resting on the promise that their justified status was given them by their faith in Messiah, they would gladly have obeyed the word of God. But we're talking about believers in Israel. Without first having faith, no one can keep the law, much less delight in it. 
Rather, it would be a drudgery to any unbeliever eventually. It would also expose his sin. And far from offering him justification, the law would condemn him, which is really the second purpose of the law. By way of application, I would say the same is true today. One must be born again before one can turn to the Bible and obey its commands and even find them a delight. And those who are not born again will never be able to live by faith in the word of God or even please God, Romans 8, 7 and 8. In addition, let me also clarify and caution us that, that it, is, it is not a foregone conclusion, I think, that Christians will love God's word at every point and in every context and eagerly obey it. No, I mean, I haven't experienced that in my life. And I'm sure you haven't either. They often have trouble living by faith or the same faith by which they were justified. Isn't that interesting? Remember, we, t- we said that the prophet speaks of, of both saving faith and sanctifying faith in that one phrase. It's very pregnant. And Christians today have trouble, I think, living by the same faith that they were justified with. And, and we can point our fingers at the legalists and poo-poo those in the church who try to live by their own strength all day long, but are we reveling in God's truth and eagerly applying it as we're enabled to by the Holy Spirit? You see, on the one hand, many Christians are confident that they are born again. Well, I trusted the gospel many years ago, and I never looked back. I have no doubts. If I drop dead today, I know I'll be in heaven. I trusted Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Yet on the other hand, they doubt his word on their marriage, or on their parenting, or their work ethic, or their interpersonal relationships with others inside and outside the church. I know what the Bible says, they explain, but I just, I just cannot do that. And I hear that all the time, too. And by cannot, they don't mean that they are physically or mentally unable. They don't want to. They refuse to say can when God says can. They say, I cannot, which is code for I don't want to. The law curses, the law condemns, and now Paul says it saves no one. That's verse, verses, uh, verse 12. The law, or a combination of the law and faith, kills. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. What's going on here? Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, there's no escaping the fact that, that justification by faith and keeping the law are mutually exclusive. Right? The Judaizers try to put them together, but one has nothing to do with the other. They mean two totally or entirely different things. Justification by faith means to renounce one's own way to God and rely completely on the finished work of a substitute, that is Christ. And, the, and there is no life by the law. 
trusting in your obedience to the law to save you will get you nowhere fast. And in fact, it will kill you. So the two have nothing to do with each other. They're opposite. And here we see the utter frustration of a work's salvation. It calls for a lifetime of effort that will ultimately fall short of the glory of God and see that the wages of sin is death. Paul drives this truth home by quoting Leviticus 18.5. He says, keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. Paul's point in quoting this verse is to say that anyone with a work salvation mentality, and in the Judaizers case that meant keeping the law of Moses, takes on an impossible task. Yes, it is true. You will live by keeping God's law. But again, break any part of it, even once, and you're guilty of being a lawbreaker, and it slays you right then and there. Paul testifies to this in Romans 7, verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. Salvation is not by any human work at all, even in combination with faith. Paul would tell us in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. The fact of the matter is, Leviticus 8.5 only accuses all unbelieving Jews and Gentiles of guilt and condemns them to death. It says, you can try to keep the law at every point, but you're going to fail miserably because you are by nature a sinner. As Paul would later write in Philippians 3.9, we may be found in him not having a a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that brings us really to a wonderful conclusion in verses 13 and 14. Only faith in Christ saves. The only hope of being right with God is is Christ, as Paul explains in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Uh, There are a, a few theological concepts here that are so very important for our understanding of conversion. We understand curse, I think, well enough. We defined it back in verse 10 as judicial judgment. It's divine disapproval and anathema from God upon all, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's not something that any guilty person can escape. He and she are under its power, as we noted earlier. Second, there is redemption. Very important word. This is such a a great word. In fact, it means to buy back out of slavery. The Bible has a great picture of redemption in the book of Hosea. If you've never read Hosea, you ought to. God wanted to demonstrate his abundant faithfulness and love to his bride Israel who was unfaithful to him. And so he uses Hosea's marriage to Gomer as as an object lesson. 
God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. She's unfaithful to him and leaves him for another man. After her new man grew tired of her, he puts her up on, uh, for sale on an auction block, if you can imagine. Hosea buys her back and loves her greatly. And that is how God redeems us. Would God pay anything to redeem an adulterous people? God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Third concept is substitutionary atonement. It's not mentioned there, but it's certainly implied. This is what you get when you meet God's curse with God's remedy in Christ. The phrase Christ died for us speaks of substitution. We were cursed by the law because we were lawbreakers. So Jesus becomes cursed for us. He became his people's curse. The death he died was our death. It's so simple. It's one for one. And Luther, Martin Luther explains the exchange curse this way. Quote, Thou Christ are my sin and my curse, or rather, I am thy sin, thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell, and thy contrarywise Thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, and my heaven. How did Jesus accomplish this? He hung on a cross, which in ancient times was a graphic expression of a cursed individual. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21-23 about a body hanging on a tree as being a cursed thing in the land. Now, obviously, the passage cannot refer to circumcision because circumcision, I'm sorry, crucifixion, because crucifixion hadn't been in, in, invented yet. And that came later with the Jews, uh, with the Romans. But when Moses wrote this, the ancients practiced a form of intimidation by hanging their captors either alive or dead on a post for their enemies to see, or as a warning not to mess with them. Joshua did this, you might remember, with five Amorite kings. God cursed evildoers, so they were either impaled on a tree or a post to die a slow death, or killed first and then displayed on a tree for all to see. God also instructed, though, his people to take the display down of these cursed people before sundown. Otherwise, it would be considered an affront to God himself. And Joshua does this. It is also why the Jews took Jesus off the cross once they were sure he was dead before sundown. Otherwise, they would have violated the Sabbath. Criminals were cursed. And the fact, uh, that fact, the fact that they were cursed, was demonstrated by hanging their bodies on trees. Now Paul refers to this ancient practice to support the idea that Jesus redeems us by becoming sin for us and as a result coming under the curse of the law for us too. For he was displayed on a tree as well when he was crucified. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Well, fourth and finally, there is the important plural pronoun us. Why is that important? Because Paul is speaking to Gentiles, including himself, in with them as objects of God's saving love. Jesus became a curse for both Jews and Gentiles. He redeemed both because both were guilty of breaking God's law. I can see that for Jews, but Gentiles? They didn't even know the law. How could they have violated it? No, they didn't know the law, but they were a law unto themselves. Paul would explain this very clearly in Romans chapter 2. In verses 14 to 16, Paul says, For when Gentiles do, uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing them or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. In principle, Galatians are lawbreakers, and therefore they are under the law's curse. Therefore, there is no question that Jesus' substitutionary atonement saved both Jews and Gentiles, and that truth brings us to verse 14 and these two glorious purpose clauses or the purposes, rather, for saving us all, the first of which comes in the beginning of verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Jesus' redemption brought us a share in the blessing of Abraham. We argued for that uh, last time. We devoted, in fact, our entire time to that concept, And Christians receive, as a result of their justification through faith in Christ, the blessings of Abraham. They are true spiritual descendants of Abraham. The second purpose clause comes in the last part of verse 14, so that we could receive the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus' redemption ushered in the new ministry of the Holy Spirit, as you remember, Acts chapter 2. And with these two purpose statements, then, we come right back to Paul's starting point. The blessing of Abraham, that is the reception of the Holy Spirit, is received through faith alone. By way of application, beloved, let me say that there is no substitute for God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. No substitute at all. And when we understand the concept of substitutionary atonement where Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our curse, that we might exchange our curse for his righteousness, we're all the more humbled and motivated to live by faith in him and in his truth that we call the Bible. In fact, Paul's words in the first part of verse 13, just before he quotes the verse from Deuteronomy, is likely not Paul's own words, but really an early Christian confession that was in circulation in the first in, in the early churches before Paul. And that's according to New Testament scholars. First century Christians would have declared, perhaps in unison at the worship service, or maybe even just prior to practicing the Lord's Supper, Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Sounds like a statement of faith or a confession. Well, it had become a precious truth to the early church, and it makes complete sense that Paul would have used it to introduce the blessings in verse 14 that come with Christ's substitutionary atonement. In closing, I want to say that all our applications throughout the study have applied to Christians, and rightly so. Paul was writing to Christians, the Galatians, but the error that confronted them attacked the very gospel that saved them, a gospel that they and we rest in, and the only one that we proclaim. And we need to proclaim it, therefore, the way we have received it. In doing so, it begs the question in any unbeliever's mind, why would a loving God ever condemn anyone? As God's law demonstrates, being an extension of his character, God is holy, and God is offended by sin. He's also just, and he's obligated to punish sin. Even unbelievers have a clear sense of justice and would be outraged if a judge with a great reputation for being kind let a mass murderer go. Think about that. They would scream for the murderer's blood and demand justice, right? Should then they expect infinitely more from a holy and just God when it comes to being just and right. If you can reason with someone to the point where he would concede that, then it's time to establish the truth that this infinite, infinitely just and holy God is also equally loving and merciful. And knowing that man cannot exonerate himself from his his rightly deserved sentence of eternal condemnation, the Lord Jesus Christ is his hope. Jesus kept the law perfectly for the sinner. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sinner. He took your hell and gave you heaven in exchange. And if you're wise in your approach to witnessing to this person, you would do well to use God's law in the beginning, which would not only accuse him of guilt, but point him to Christ as his Savior. Let me see God's remedy, the judicial pardoning that comes only in Christ. Let him see, rather. Let him see that the law tells him you cannot do it yourself except the provision, therefore, that Christ has made on behalf of sinners. John MacArthur finds an illustration to show this justifying faith and how it involves self-renunciation by turning to that moment when the Israelites were at the Red Sea. He says, speaking of the unbeliever, when he sees God's justice pursuing him and God's judgment ahead of him, he realizes his helplessness in himself and that he has nowhere to turn but to God's mercy and grace. What a great message we have.
And our Father in God, we're grateful for that message. We're grateful for the reality that it proclaims. We do pray that we would be bold to proclaim it as we have received it, that we'd be precise, and that, Lord, we would take our time with those that you bring into our lives who desperately need Christ to explain the bad news that is part of the gospel, that we would not shirk in our responsibility to outline the desperate estate of a sinner. We pray that with all love intact, O oh God, you would, you would assist our proclamation and that it would not fall on hardened hearts, but hearts that have been made softened to receive the seed of the gospel. And that, Lord, as a result, the hearer would be eager to hear the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would become better at this and that we would protect our very precious faith from heretics, from false teachers, that we would follow Paul as well as Abraham in protecting the faith, contending for it, knowing our doctrine well, that we might live it and, uh, and that we might use it for your glory and for your honor and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.